Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we're joined by Angela Lansbury. Welcome, Angela. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just a very quick uh, synopsis. Brilliant movie career, wonderful television career, certainly a murder she wrote. In a theater career, Broadway debut back in 1957, Hotel Paradiso, five musicals, a uh, featured actress in Anyone Can Whistle, then your four starring roles, all four of them, you won Tonys as Best Actress in a Musical, Mame, Dear World, Gypsy, The Revival, and Sweeney Todd. Pretty impressive uh, credentials. Any favorite show of the ones that you did on Broadway? It would be so hard for me to put a name to them, my most favorite. Um... Uh, Being the most recent, I suppose, Sweeney Todd Uh lingers with me more easily than the others, but I still sing all the songs from Gypsy, and every morning when I get up and wash my teeth, I'm singing, wherever we go, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so things... those those tunes uh, die very slowly in one's mind. They never do, right, of course. But uh, they're very much they're very much with me all the time. Well, certainly Gypsy and uh, and Mame some very singable music in those in Dear World as well. Very different than Sweeney Todd in terms of mood. Totally different. And uh, I'm I'm so interested uh, now that I look back and think of my beginnings in musical theater and and what I ended up doing and being. It was extremely interesting to me that um, every, the, the, the parts were so diverse. I mean, in fact, you know, uh, anyone can whistle was one thing. I was singing a score that was uh, um, Stephen's first music and lyric um, uh, s- s- score, and uh, I, I was singing out of my range. I didn't know how to sing in those days, but I gradually learned, and then I did mame, and that uh, involved a different kind of singing, and that was good. And then Dear World, of course, using another part of my voice. So I was always sort of attempting something that was a little different until I got to Gypsy and, and uh, Sweeney Todd. When you say a different part of your voice, different range, different... Mm-hmm. Absolutely, And yes. also a different type of performance called... Totally for. different, yes. Yeah. Yes, but that's called acting. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start from the very beginning. You were born in England but came over to the U.S. when you were a teenager. And that was once the war had begun in, in England? Yes, I came when I was 14. It was in 1940, do your quick math. And uh, I, I was already a student of the theater. I'd started my training at the Weber Douglas School in England. And uh, I was a very mature 14-year-old, I've got to say that. And so when I arrived in New York, I had the opportunity to, uh, to get a, a scholarship and I might say that it was it was made possible through the American Theatre Wing. And uh, my mother, who was an actress herself, Moyna McGill, uh, knew various people who were in the wing. The, the main one, of course, was Noel Coward. He also, uh, I don't know whether he was a member of the Theatre Wing. I think he was. Well, we should explain that at that point, the American Theatre Wing was actually known as the American Theatre Wing of the British War Relief Effort. It had not even truncated its name, and if it was 1940, the U.S. had not entered the war. So it was very much focused on helping our friends in England. 
so in turn this scholarship would be right along the lines of what they were trying to do. Well, that was the wonderful thing because we came in, into the country really only with the support of our wonderful sponsor family, uh, the, the uh, Wilson family, who who uh, gave us the money to subsist during the period of the war. And uh, we lived very quietly and we didn't have a, any kind of income. We just had expenses and a little pocket money. So I didn't have the money to pay to, to have training. So the, the, the wing provided me through the the good services of the Weber, uh, um, not Weber Douglas, but uh, the um, uh, what was the name of the school that I went to mm, in Rockefeller Center? Uh, I've suddenly forgotten the name, but it'll come to me as the as the day goes on. Anyway, they did, and I, I attended the school through the wing and as a scholarship student, mm. and went for two years. And then. It was Obviously the Fagan, the, pardon me, I must say, it was the Fagan School of Dramatic yeah. Art, yes, mm-hmm. run by Lucy Fagan. But you came to the U.S. in 1940, and by 1944, you have your first film role. How did that, what was the chronology there of, of your two years in school? So, so it's 1942, you're finishing your schooling here in New York. Mm-hmm. How, did you, how did you get that first film role? Well, I finished my training here in New York, and through one of the students at the school that I was attending, I got to work up an act. He decided that I had a kind of a freaky voice and I could do lots of weird things. And in those days, if you remember, people like Streisand, a little later than me, of course, we would appear at places like the Rubon Bleu and Number 1 Fifth Avenue. And these were kind of little supper club clubs. And there was a man... I wish I could remember his name, but he would let you come in and, and work for a night, and you could try out your material. Well, I, I got this uh, situation, so I went and tried out my material. I had this act, and uh, uh, I, all right, so I, I found I was moderately successful, you know, not, nothing great. Anyway, I, I went to Roseland, and I uh, did an audition for agents there to get a job. I needed to work terribly. So this agent in Roseland got me a job, not in the U.S., but in Canada. So I went up to uh, to Montreal, and I worked in a, in a nightclub there called the Samovar, which was run by a Russian immigrant. And uh, I did the act, and I was on the bill with sword swallowers and Spanish dancers and and uh, a wonderful uh, Yugoslavian singer called Blanca, and we shared dressing rooms, and it was an extraordinary experience. I was 16. I, pre- I pretended I was 19, and uh, I did my act. Now, and you said you could do weird things with your voice. What sort of weird things? Well, and I, I could sing extremely high, kind uh-huh. of color So I did. I would do pieces out of... I would do a little bits of uh, Tristan and Isolde, uh, Brunhilde, uh, French chanteurs, English countryside songs, just straight taut songs. I did all kinds of uh, singing. Uh, but uh, my, my career in that field began and ended with that uh, with, <laughs> with, with, with that job. I never did it again. I never have to this day. And uh, so you say, how did I get then? Oh, all right, I came back to New York, and my mother by that time had made her way to the coast. She was in Los Angeles. She was looking for work as an actress. She knew quite a few people in the business out there, like uh, Ian Hunter and uh, uh, Sarah Allgood 
and some uh, Arthur Shields, all, all kinds of people who were uh, also for immigrants from Ireland and England who were actors. So she said to me, why don't you come out to Los Angeles? I think I found we have some family out here and we could live much cheaper here. By that time, we, we still... We, we had got our quota numbers. We were able to work our green cards. Once we were able to work, we, we wanted to disengage ourselves from our sponsor because we didn't feel it was fair to, to keep using his money to subsist in this country. So we wanted to keep ourselves. So we, uh, we did right up to the point uh, that I left New York, and then we were on our own. And uh, I went out to the coast, and I really couldn't get a job. You know, I, I was on the market as a young actress, and uh, I did do some uh, uh, some auditions at Paramount and 20th Century Fox and places, but uh, I did my act, and they really thought I was a bit mad. Here was this English girl coming, screaming around and, you know, doing all these voices and things. So finally, um, I gave up, and I got a job in a department store. I, I didn't give up, don't misunderstand me, but I had to make some money, so I, I worked in the, uh, in the cashier's department of a very illustrious... Uh, department store in Los Angeles called Bullock's, Bullock's Wilshire. And uh, from there I became a sales lady. And it was during the um, time of my first uh, vacation from the store, two weeks after Christmas, that I got a call from a young friend of mine who was being, uh, being considered for the role of Dorian Gray. And he said, Angie, I think I could get you an interview with a casting director. And uh, I will, I will see that you get get into the studio. It's very difficult to get into the studio like MGM. I mean, you couldn't just walk in; the doors were locked, you know. So you had to have a lot of entree. And uh, finally, I did. And well, my mother came with me because I was underage. I was only seventeen at the time. And on that first interview, the the casting director sent me straight in to see George Cukor, the director, and the producer Arthur Hornblower of Gaslight. And uh, George Cukor uh, greeted me very warmly. He was a terribly nice man, very sensitive and understanding of the nervousness of a young actress on these occasions. But uh, he asked my mother to coach me in the scene and that we would come back the next day and I'd read it. So I did. And um, he then was very enthusiastic again and uh, he arranged for me to have a test. So I tested with a young actor who at that time um, was, was Hugh Marlowe, and I made the test. He played the uh, Charles Boyer role, and uh, I made this test. Mm. It was very oh, a wonderful, wonderful event, and I, I didn't know whether I'd get the part or not. But the point was that while I was there seeing about Gaslight, they were looking for a young girl to play Sybil Vane in the picture of Dorian Gray, which was the reason I went to the studio, actually. So I, uh, of course... I did manage to get both roles. Well, you got both. You got Academy Award nominations for both, and it set off just a string of film and and, and early television work as well right away throughout, really, the late 40s and the 1950s. But since we're concerning ourselves primarily with stage work, let's go immediately then to when did you come back to New York, your, we see that your Broadway debut was in 1957 in Hotel Paradiso. I came back to New York on the invitation of Peter Glenville, the director of Hotel Paradiso. He had known me uh, before in Hollywood, and uh, he decided that I should make my Broadway debut, and this would be an ideal part, play Madame Cotte. 
So I was thrilled to death because I never felt that I'd proven myself in any way until I appeared on Broadway. Broadway was it as far as I was concerned. To be reviewed by the critics here meant everything to me. So, because I was still really a serious actress, even though I was playing dancehall girls and kicking around in Hollywood, nevertheless, I was really, really wanted a, an important stage career because to me that was it. So I went in and uh, played with uh, Bert Law and uh, John Emery and a wonderful cast, and uh, we, we ran for about six months on Broadway, and that was my Broadway debut, and it was fabulous. Yeah. It's interesting. You had a very successful movie career going, but you felt mm. that for your acting, to give it legitimacy, so to speak, you had to be on Broadway. I did. Legitimacy is the word. Uh-huh. <laughs> had you always wanted to, since you were in that first acting class when you were a teenager, had you always wanted to be in theater more so than film? Or Yes. So film was just kind of a diversion, a sidestep? Absolutely, because when I was in drama school, theater was all. One trained for the theater. One built one's voice. One learned makeup. One learned everything about presenting oneself on stage as various characters or whatever, you know. And that intrigued me. I, I always found that the most interesting part. All the, the wigs and, and the makeup and the clothes. Well, Hotel Paradiso and uh, the show that followed that, Taste of Honey, were both plays. Um, with with Taste of Honey, I mean, because that is, we do think of you as a musical performer, and Taste of Honey was a major dramatic work at, at that time. Was that the the U.S. premiere of the show at that time? No. Yes, that was, yes, that was the U.S. premiere. Yeah. yeah, it had been done. Tony Richardson directing, and you played the mother of Joan Plowright who you are separated from by four years, as I understand it. Absolutely. Was this the beginning, or were you already begun this trend of playing mothers to, to actors who were virtually your age? Uh, it, it was part of the early years of doing just that. While I was at MGM during the seven years, eight years that I was under contract, I played a lot of elderly women. I played... What Walter did they say Pigeon's to you? Wife, you know. <laughs> how, how do they say to a, to a teenager, we want you to play you know, 20, 30 years older or play the mother of someone who is your age? I think that they considered that I was a character actress, and they were right, of course. It didn't phase me, you see, to do that. I, so I just took it as a, an opportunity to play a role in which I would be called upon to act older. Now, that required certain skills, attitudes, and so on, which... Uh, I had even at that early age. I don't say it as uh, to pat myself on the back. It was just seemed to be a built-in maturity, because as I told you, I grew up very fast. A lot of young people did during those first years of World War Two. It was required. We all did. Hmm. Well, taste of honey. You were only in your mid thirties at that point, so you were obviously playing much older. Yes, not so no. much older. You see, she was supposed to be quite young. She was supposed to be younger than she actually was. So she she was to supposed younger. to be about 17. Uh-huh. You know, I could have been about 37, you know, creeping up on 40. Uh-huh. So, in fact, that was in 60. I was 35. And uh, so it wasn't such a stretch for me. It was just that Joan Plowright was playing much, much younger, younger than her age. Exactly. So then Anyone Can Whistle, your first musical role. How did that come about? 
Well, that was a sort of a miracle, and I, I, I'll never forget the day. I can just see, you know, certain certain memories that remain, you know, etched in your mind, uh-huh. and and I never forget getting this wonderfully thin, thin blue envelope, and on the back it said Arthur Lawrence. Now I knew vaguely who Arthur Lawrence was, but not terribly well. And it opened the envelope, and you know, it said something to the effect, "Dear Miss Lansbury." Stephen Sondheim and I are uh, going to be involved in a new musical which he has written and I am planning to direct it and we'd be very interested to hear you sing because there's a role of the mayoress in it and uh, we're coming out to California and would you would you be prepared to audition for us? Well, I wrote back immediately and said on my knees, you know, down there, Yes, I would. Did I you mean, know Stephen Sondheim's no. work at that point? Oh, I knew his work just through Gypsy and uh, uh, also through uh, West Side Story. So I knew who he was, and I certainly knew who Arthur was through Turning Point and various big Hollywood scripts. That's how I knew of him. So he was a very illustrious name, you see, and still is. So I, um, I prepared myself, uh, and they came out, and I went into a room, and I sang... A Foggy Day in London Town. Huh. Everybody knows that. That's no news. Uh, it, it was terribly exciting for me. The, the, the only thing I can say is, at that time in my career, I could sing on pitch, you know, and uh, that was about it, really. Were you tempted to sing anything that Sondheim himself had, had written? Um, no. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't that kind of a singer. I was never a stand-up singer. Uh-huh. Well, in fact, I read that... There was a question about whether you were actually able to sing loud enough to be on Broadway. Now you're talking. Uh, loudness was all in those days because we were not miked to the degree that people are today. And uh, we were dependent on foot mics and, and shotguns in the wings. So you really had to have a quite a, quite a bit of voice, you know. And uh, mine had not been developed to that degree that it should have been because I just didn't realize until it happened that I might be called upon to sing on Broadway with a full orchestra. And that's something else, you know. Well, you said that you certainly knew who Stephen Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence were. Um, How did they know of you? How did they discover you? They knew me through the movies. Uh Um, I think they'd seen me, and they'd probably seen me on Broadway playing uh, the mother in, in, uh, In in A Taste of Honey, and uh, also in, in Hotel Paradiso. But but you weren't known as a singer, so how did they know you could you could sing? Well, I'd sung I'd sung in the movies, you know. Uh-huh. I'd sung in uh, Till the Clouds Roll By, and uh, that that and um, uh, Sybil Vane sang, of course, in the picture of Dorian Gray. I did not actually sing in the other movie, which was um, uh, the Harvey Girls. I didn't sing. That was somebody else's voice. MGM Music Department didn't think I had the voice to do that. And I didn't. I I know that now. I do today, but I didn't then. But clearly you met the challenge. You were loud enough (laughs) for for everyone. And do you recall what the the spirit was around that production? It was actually Sondheim's second show, Writing Music and Lyrics, because it followed Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, but certainly had a different take and a different tone. And as we know now, many years on, it had... An extremely short run, but what was the sense of what you were creating at that time? I think what the show did was it gave me the confidence 
to think that I could improve and that I would have an op- that I would have a ch- that I could have a chance to do more in musical theater but I must say that after that particular nine performances I was knocked out vocally and I didn't sing probably for six months hmm. and it wasn't until Hello Dolly opened and a good friend of mine uh, Sandra Lee who was in uh, Hotel Paradiso with me said to me she said she was she played Tiger Lily in uh, uh, in uh, Peter Pan you know and she was also played one of many Minnie Fisk, well, Minnie Fisk, I think it was, in Dolly. And uh, she was very close to Jerry Herman. And she called me one day and she said, you know, Jerry Herman has written, is writing, with uh, Jerome Lawrence and, and Robert Lee, um, the new musical based on Auntie Mame. It's called Mame. And she said, I think you'd be marvelous to play Mame. And I know that Jerry Herman does, because he had seen Anyone Can Whistle. So between the lot of us, there was a lot of backstage kind of whispering going on between all of the Lawrence and Lee, Jerry Herman, myself, and Sandra. Uh, I finally got to audition for MAME, and that was the, the only reason that I went back to Broadway, because Jerry Herman believed that I could do this. And but it was an audition. Me. It, it, was, it was an audition. It wasn't just, and, we think she'd be great. No, absolutely not. And Josh Logan at that time was going to be the director, and he really didn't believe that I was right for the role. He, en- he envisioned a dark woman with the cigarette holder, I think, you know, because Rosalind he had memories Russell. of Ros Russell, probably a great personal friend. Um, but uh, And he just didn't see it. And I had very difficult uh, job to convince him and the producers as well. Uh, I'm trying to remember their names. Um, there was a, a couple, a very rich couple, who were the backers of the show, and they also weren't sure about me. I mean, there were a lot of a lot of people who, who weren't sure I could ca- bring it off. I don't blame them. I really don't blame them at all. So, what was it that finally did convince them? I, I auditioned about three times, uh-huh. and on the third time, Josh Logan was no longer in the picture. He he had been replaced with Gene Sachs, and Gene certainly understood. He got, as they they say in the parlance, my message. He 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 understood what I was about and what I could do with the role, and he 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 believed in me. And uh, his wife, B. Arthur, was a perfect uh, casting, of course, for. Um, for um, what's her name? Vera Charles. Yeah, Vera, Vera Charles. So, um, Beale never forgive me for forgetting the name of the character. My goodness, I'll have to call her up and apologize. <laughs> Let's hope she never hears this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, we prefer to hope that she does. But that's well, I hope she does. <laughs> what, 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 what did the real Mame Dennis look like? Did she look more like you or more like Rosalind Russell? Do you think? I think she probably looked more like Rosalind Russell, but I felt that that role had been played that way enough, and. I wanted to make her more like Ina Clare. Now, Ina Clare, as you know, was an incredible sort of actress of the 1930s and 40s, and I just had such admiration for her, although I never actually saw her, but I loved her looks. There was a simplicity and a beauty about her that I just I longed to be able to emulate, and uh, that's really what I went for. I didn't go. I, I never. I never watched the movie of Ros Russell playing Auntie Mame. 
and I never saw the original production. Thank hmm. goodness. Hmm. And it helped. I was able to create this whole whole person that was not either one of those, you know, ladies. Uh, so to this day, have you seen the movie? Or you still haven't no, watched it? I haven't seen it. And never intend to? No, I never will. No, hmm. no. So you keep your name in your memory the yeah. way that you did it. Yeah. yeah. So what did you do physically then? You had you had the look that you were trying mm-hmm. for then mm-hmm. f- physically. Cut, cut my hair off, you know, uh-huh. and I became a kind of a free sprite. Uh-huh. And uh, here is I, a woman. In, I was just 39, I think, approaching 40. Never thought about age ever. I, I still don't. But uh, at that time, I, of course, I was just coming into my maturity as a woman, and it was a, it was a wonderful thing to have the opportunity to play Mame because up to that time, I played a lot of mothers, as we've, as we've said, and I'd never been, really been able to be really glamorous. So uh, with Bob McIntosh's costumes and uh, Gene Sachs' direction, they, they helped me beyond, beyond all words. Unbelievable. And of course, with B. Arthur. And B. was you, fantastic. Yeah, yes. the uh, two of you worked so well together yes. in that show. Yeah. It's true natural comedians, so to speak. Yes, yes, we did. We just played off each other, and it was perfect. Now, how long did you do? The show ran for, for about four years, but you did not do the entire run, certainly. Mm-hmm. How long did you do it for? Two years on Broadway. And about four months, uh, not a national tour, but uh, to Los Angeles and San Francisco, just the two. two. Because certainly with your desire to be mm-hmm. on Broadway or interested in, in musicals, you made the comment that you were exhausted after nine performances of, of Anyone Can Whistle. It must have been quite something to, to sustain two-plus years in the same role. Well, let's put it this way. I was doing something that I just enjoyed every moment of with MAME. I mean, the audience's reaction was so spontaneous and so warm and so giving, and you couldn't uh, not respond in a positive and affirmative way, and uh, which made it possible to go on and on and on and on and on. And I think it has to do a lot to do with uh, the person. Uh, it suits me to kind of have a, a rather cut-and-dried uh, program for myself. If I know I have to go and be on stage by 2.30, ready to go, I, I relish that, I, and I do it. I'm like a racehorse who's primed to go out the gate, you know, at a certain point, and I'll do it at 2.30. In those days, it was 2.30, and uh, then it used to be at 8.30. Not anymore, mm-hmm. but uh, that's the way I was, and I and I, I always enjoyed it. When the curtain went up and the overture started, but the overture started, it was, you just were ready to roll, you know, ready to go. I still am. And were you concerned at the time? You certainly, you mentioned Hello, Dolly, and it coming off of that. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, that became such a signature role for Carol Channing and mm-hmm. the role she continued to play and play. Were you at all concerned about then becoming, okay, this is my Jerry Herman show and mm-hmm. and I'm always going to be Mame? You certainly, you did go back and do the show again, but was there any concern about being typed as that type of performance? Yes, yes there really was. I didn't want to be typed. And having done Mame for as long as that, two years plus, they asked me to go to London, and I chose not to go. I sometimes wonder well, how life would have been different if I had, but uh, I didn't. And it was a, a mutual agreement between my husband and my family and I that I didn't go to London, although I was very, uh, you know, criticized by the English for not coming. So I had to wait a little longer to get there. But anyway, um, I... 
Well, let me ask then. It seems that during the process of MAME, towards the latter part of the run, just looking at the timing of when Dear World came up, it seems like Jerry Herman must have had that cooking for you almost at the point at which you were ready to, to get out of MAME. Well, he did, but he didn't have it cooking for me. He had it cooking for Catherine Hepburn. If, and he mm. and she decided not to do it. Huh. And it was at that point that he said, Angie, would you do this? Would you like to do this? And I thought, wonderful. I, I'm go- I'd love to play the mad woman because it'll get me away from MAME. I won't be always stuck as, be- as being MAME. And it, I can get back to proving to people that I, I'm, I'm more, you, you know, than, than a madcap Polly kind of thing. And I want to play a serious role. Well, in the one way, it is, uh, the, the role afforded me that opportunity. But on the other hand, people were desperately disappointed because they really expected me to come out like Mame again, and not as Mame, but in that kind of character, playing you know, a fun, charming, kind of shallow sort of person. You know, well, going back not to that Mame was shallow; she wasn't. Going back to Mame and going back to Hello Dolly, Mame following mm-hmm. Dolly is Jerry Herman's next show. Um, was there any expectation for you to follow basically Carol Channing and Dolly? Was there pressure on you now to make it your own identity and to develop MAME as its own show? Or was this looked at as being kind of, well, you're going to be judged against Hello, Dolly, and what Carol Channing had done, simply because it was the next Jerry Herman show? I never thought of it that way. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think that was the, the case. Um, Jerry Herman was riding high uh, at that time, and you couldn't compare the two shows. I mean, the the style was quite different, you know. And um, what can I say? Mame Mame is a classic in its own way, as as so is Dolly, you know, because coming coming from the original, um, what was the original called? um, I forget what... the original of, of the Dolly? Original Dolly was the matchmaker. The, the matchmaker, right. It was based on the matchmaker. Mame was based on uh, Auntie Mame. So they two came from very strong roots. And uh, they stood alone. I don't think there was any conflict and there was no competition, really. No competition. Uh, you know, Carol and I were always good friends. We traded off with each other. And, you know, I would love to have played Dolly, though. I, I always felt that uh, I would like to have done so. I never did. So. Following Dear World, the next major musical for you was when you went first to London, as I understand it, to do this revival of Gypsy. You did it in London first, or did you do it here first? But, you know, before I, before I did Gypsy in London, I went to London and did all over. Well, I was going to ask you yeah. about, I was going to move to dramatic, so but so we'll wait then on, uh, on Gypsy and ask, mm. because people don't often hear the name Angela Lansbury and think of Edward Albee. But exactly. you, you did do a Royal Shakespeare Company production mm-hmm. of All Over in the West End in 72. Was that your first time in London on stage? Absolutely. So that was a huge first. That was a huge step for me to go to London and to work with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and particularly to work with Peter Hall, who was uh, the head of the National Theatre at that time. So this, this, was, this was serious business very serious business for me and I really kind of dug my toes in and decided I'm going to shuck, shuck away all of this musical comedy thing and I'm going to really really kind of square away with the drama so I did and I loved it it was a marvelous opportunity to work with great actors like uh, Peggy Ashcroft Dame Peggy 
great, great lady, and and uh, uh, Sheila Hancock, and goodness knows, so many, so well, many I, wonderful people. I, I'd like to come back to to um, Gypsy in a moment, but along the same lines, then after you did Gypsy in London, then in this country, then you did Hamlet, and one doesn't think of Andrew Lansbury in Hamlet. Was that for the same reason that you wanted to do all over because it was a serious work? Yes, Shakespeare. I'd never all? done. I'd never played a Shakespearean role. Oh. And to be asked to come back to the National and uh, to open the new Littleton Theater on the, on the South Bank. I mean, that, to me, that was very exciting as a, a, a Britisher born in London, a Londoner, you know, in my youth. That was, a, to me, that was a milestone. So Kind of I, goes back to a word I think you used a little bit earlier, diverse, very yes. diverse roles. Oh, very, yes. More challenging, more interesting probably for an actor. Well, always interesting and, and diverting. Uh, I find the roles that I've played, every everyone has been different, really. Well, as we talk about these these dramatic works, and I mentioned Edward Albee with All Over, you also made what to many was an extraordinary decision to go to the Hartford Stage Company in 1977 to open their new theater, but with two Edward Albee one acts. And of course, Angela Lansbury at that time showing up in Hartford, Connecticut was was tantamount to a visit from the Queen, I would imagine. Oh, I don't think so, but you're basically very kind <laughs> to say so. But to do two small pieces, mm-hmm. I, it really, and to go do regional theater, again, was it just the chance to do that work or to do the serious work? I think it was it was certainly encouraged by Peter, my husband, who always felt that the more I did and the more I mixed and matched my work, the better it would be down the road. And he was absolutely consistently correct. Uh, because I've always said to young actresses, if you're not working and uh, if you have the opportunity to work, do it, providing it's something you feel you can bring something to the table. Um, I wasn't working for a while. In fact, I was going to have a little time off and uh, we were living out in Cold Spring on the Hudson in an old farmhouse, and I wasn't doing anything else. So Peter said, well, why don't you do it? It'll be a good exercise. And uh, I was going to work with Bill Prince and a lovely cast, and uh, so I did. Uh, Maureen Anderman was in it, and uh, it, it was a lovely experience. Very difficult, very difficult, you see. Those the things of Edwards are very difficult to And to those play. two those two plays ultimately though in their premiere very little scene listening and counting the ways being exactly. the two. They're not titles everybody hears never right off the top. They were written as radio plays. Radio. Now you mentioned your husband Peter Shaw. You were married for fifty four years. He mm-hmm. passed away in two thousand three. Um, was he an important sounding board for you in choosing your roles? Extremely important, Mm -hmm. yes. Peter really, really was. He was the encourager, and in some instances the gooser, because during the course of my life I've always had to juggle two two things, my home, my children, and uh, everything that I love about just living and being, and and my work. And uh, the two... Like one, one is in in the left hand and the other's in the right hand, and I have to decide which side I'm going to go with. And he always pushed me to keep going on the the work side, mm. not so much to make money, but simply to grow in uh, you know to grow as an actress and to basically challenge yourself. Challenge myself is the word. I did. I was always challenging myself. I was often said no when people asked me. I, n- I know you'd like to talk about Gypsy, and I can tell you right now that when I was in London, uh, having completed doing all over uh, at the Royal Shakespeare, that was when I first 
had the pitch from Arthur, uh, Arthur Lawrence and uh, uh, Barry Brown and, and uh, Fritz Holt to do Gypsy in London. I said, you must be crazy. I said, I, I, I wouldn't begin to uh, think that I could bring that off, you know. After all, everybody associates Ethel Merman with Gypsy. I do. You know, I think that overture is one of the great pieces of musical theater, you know. I would, if I want to really wrap myself up, I'll listen to that overture. Well, my gosh, I said no. I know, no, no. And for a year I said no. And then finally they came back to me, and by that time I haven't had enough time to think about it. And I, I said, all right, I'll give it a try. But people had thought of Rosalind Russell as Mame from the movie version, not the musical, but the movie version. You became Mame on stage. So why was it doubt in your mind about doing Gypsy? Uh, because of the vocal requirements. I thought her voice is, is just... The, uh, uh, the range, the power? That the sort of the range and the power, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And had you seen the original production? Had you seen Merman? No, I never saw it. So it was only the cast album, perhaps. I was in California, and I never saw it. As you know, it didn't run very long. It ran for six months, I think, was all. It wasn't a huge success on Broadway. She was, and the album was, you know, had legs, as they say. It went on and on and on to this day. So we talked about your take on MAME, your take on... Gypsy, your your take on Mama Rose, which seems to be with each generation, there is a new Mama Rose because subsequent to you, we had Tyne Daly, and subsequent to Tyne Daly, we had Bernadette Peters. How how would you describe your Mama Rose? My Mama Rose, I think. Um, well, I I saw Tyne Daly's, and um, I didn't see Bernadette. Um, I I I. I, not by comparison, I, no, but just I, what I, you what you went for in the role. Well, what did I go for? Oh, mm-hmm. oh. well, I went for an innate reality, and and I, I really wanted to understand the kind of woman who would behave as she did, a woman who had this absolutely burning desire for self recognition, which of course she never gets, but she's going to get it through her children. So it's that horrifying thing of somebody trying to attain for themselves uh, and what they can't attain for themselves they'll get it through their kids and um, they'll they'll stop at anything they'll stop at nothing to achieve success for their kids but it's really for them you know hmm. and uh, in Rose's turn which is one of the great great moments in musical theater uh, that's when she tells it all that's was there anything you are, as you said, you are the daughter of an actress who became a performer herself? Was there anything from your family that you brought to that? Yes, I think so. Yes, I think we, we draw, you draw from all kinds of sources, you know, I think, as, as actress. We, I, we use our imagination tremendously, but I, I'm not a great believer in digging up a lot of stuff out of my own life or, you know, because I don't think it's necessary. I prefer to use my imagination in, in almost every instance. Well, your your mother was an actress, yes. and uh, Rose in Gypsy was not actually an actress. She maybe had aspirations, but she wasn't. Mm-hmm. Was there anything then in your relationship with your mother that was in any way parallel to Gypsy? Was a totally different sort of relationship? Uh, I'd say we had a totally different relationship. I think towards the end of her life, I think she... Certainly there came a point where I went way ahead of her, if you know what I mean. I became a a much more bigger success in my work than she ever managed to do, although she was a very, very respected and loved leading lady 
in the British theatre in the 1920s. And I think she would like to have had more of a career as life went on, but it just wasn't to be. And uh, I think, in a sense, she felt great regret, and I could only be very sorry that that was the case, but I was aware of it. Well, you have two children of your own. Mm -hmm. How did you balance being a mother and a personal life versus your, your, your career? Because you have a, a very, very busy career, certainly. I, d I didn't balance it very uh -huh. well. I didn't balance it very well, and I hate to hide behind the fact, but I have to say that in the 1960s, when my children fell by the wayside, there were drugs and so on, it was because we didn't know how to respond to their activities. We had no recourse to, we had no rehab, we had no doctors, we had nobody that we could go and talk. It was uh, uh, considered, you know, really pretty awful if your children were into drugs, but most kids were. And now we know that was the case, and uh, we can deal with it. We have rehab places that kids and, and adults can go to, you know, for abusing, abusing drugs and so on. But in those days, we didn't. And half the time, we weren't aware. So I just kept on working. It wouldn't have helped at all for me to stop working because they, they led a, a double life. They led that life that they told us about at home and the life that they had out and beyond. And we weren't even clever enough to, to twig to this. And I don't think a lot of parents are, even to this day. That's why we have all these cell phones. I hope it helps. And how old would your children have been at this time during this, this period? 13, 14 years old. Uh -huh. Yes. Right at that very critical age. Yeah. So you've come back now. You've done Gypsy on Broadway. And f a couple of years after that, you, you went into The King and I for a bit. Didn't create the role in that production. Just wondering what, what prompted you to, to take over since you'd, you'd originated ever, ever in all of the other shows. Again, uh, I was asked. <laughs> <laughs> Who, what, when, where, simple, why? <laughs> simple, simple, simple. Um, the... The lead, who was um, Gil Brenner, was desperate to have a, a, a holiday. And so they decided they'd give him three weeks off, and at the same time, they would give um, Constance, Constance, Towers. Constance Towers three weeks off at the same time. So I played Connie's part, uh, Mrs. Emma. Evans. Mrs. Emma. Yes. And. Um, Michael, name's gone from me, played um, Yul Brynner's role. And we kept the show going for three weeks in, in very good shape. And it was a lovely opportunity for me to learn mm. that role. So it was a wonderful role. And I got to use my soprano voice and all these things which I hadn't done. It was a very good thing I did, too. So you just stepped in for those three weeks. Because I was going to need it. I stepped in for three weeks. Right. But do you know I was rehearsed by Richard Rogers, mm. And I had all new costumes made by that divine costumier with a, not Chinese name, but I forget her name. Anyway, um, I had these beautiful, beautiful gowns, all new. But you were really put in, in a way we don't often see people go in, you know, mm -hmm. as replacements. And, of course, we, we don't have the occasion of major, major stars mm -hmm. taking over a role for, as you said, for three weeks. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen in this day and age. Well, you know, uh, we British actors are used to playing in, in uh, repertory, and we don't mind playing a role for a short time. Hmm. Well, you it's go from okay. roles in Mame, in Gypsy, The King and I, 
Then you become Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd. <laughs> Very different sort of a show. It's running again now in, in revival on Broadway. How did that all come about? And, well, I was just going to say, and of course, you had done a rather odd piece of work by Stephen Sondheim with Anyone Can Whistle years earlier. So how did it come about? How did you react when you were told what the show was about? Well, my first reaction was, all right, uh, you know, you know uh, Sweeney Todd, that's the title of the show. Who's Mrs. Lovett, you know? And I didn't, I hadn't uh, read the ballad of Sweeney Todd, you know, which is uh, uh, Sweeney, Todd, uh, Sweeney Todd will get you if you don't watch out kind of thing. It's a children's, uh, you know, little fable There was a scene. horror film uh, from the late 30s based on the story from England. Yeah. Yes. I never saw that, so I, I didn't know who Mrs. Lovett was. Uh, so anyway, I when I got the telegram in Ireland, I was in Ireland at the time, and uh, it came in on one of those wind-up telephones, you know, and this little woman in in, in, in the post office. The post office used to take the t- phone calls and then plug you in, oh. you know, in, in those days. And it was right in the middle of the night, and, and it came through. And, and when I read it, it said... Would you be interested in appearing in a production of uh, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, in the role of Mrs. Lovett? And um, so I wired back, and I think I said, uh, who's Mrs. Lovett, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> clue me in here. So they did, and this was from Stephen and, and Arthur, uh, not Arthur, uh, from... Um, Hal Prince. Hal Prince, yes, from Hal. So um, uh, when I found out, I said, well, you know, send me a script. So I did, and when I came into New York, I met Hugh Wheeler, who, of course, was the librettist, and uh, he he was he and and Stephen between them really sold me on it. I, I but they had to work you. Uh, they did have to work me a bit because I, you know, I, I thought, well, this this show's called Sweeney Todd. It's not called Mrs. Lovett, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and after having played Mame, yes, and, yes, Gypsy, and and, you were the I and King and I, and yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yes. No, I, I don't want to be. I don't want to sound uh, like a silly actress about this, but it was, you know, I needed to know uh, how I how how it shaped up in the scheme of things. Uh, I wanted to be sure I could make something of it that I had enough to to work with. And was was there enough to work with, oh, that, yeah. or did it have to be developed? No, no, no. It really wasn't. No, it was all there. Oh. It was all there. And I went to, to Stephen's house, and he played me the score, and we—he was hysterical with laughter. He he started off by playing. He said, "I'm going to play something for you." He said, "I'm not very good at singing this bit, but you'll you'll know how to do this." And it was so. Wait, watch your wash. Wait, watch your rush. Watch your hurry. You know, <laughs> and slapping around with the pies and everything, and the flour all over the place. And he was doing it on the piano and playing <laughs> and singing <laughs> at the same time. I was on the floor. It was so funny. It made me laugh so much that I thought, oh. This is going to be fantastic. It's going to be such fun and, you know, very funny and awful and gruesome and dreadful. And it's going to work. But pun definitely intended a very juicy role. Very juicy role, yes. Yes. But but also a role that required a lot of sort of nonsense that I hadn't had a ch- ever had a chance to do. In, in any role I had ever played. So again, was this the diversity thing, finding yeah. a different aspect to play? Yes. Yes. And is that was that a good selling point for you or did it scare you? No, that that actually sold me on it. If it hadn't had had that quality of of wild, you know, I I really had to dream up something extraordinary for this and I didn't have to dream very far. It was all there. It was all in the dialogue. It was all in the situations and the whole thing was mounted in a way that it worked, you know. 
it all worked. Not just for me. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about everybody, all the characters. Was there any concern on, on your part or anybody's concerned with the show that uh, it's a little bit different for a Broadway show? It's, uh, it's a very dark story, obviously. Uh, uh, Barbara hacking people up and Mrs. Lovett baking them into little pies. Definitely. I mean, we were we were the wonder of Broadway at that time. You know, people who kept in to see uh, the previews, they were astounded at the set. They were astounded at the blood that was being sort of splattered over the front rows of the orchestra. And some of those people sitting in the front rows were very unhappy about that. We had to cut down some of that. So, in fact, uh, we didn't know for quite a long time whether we were going to run. And it was only when we got the Tony, Tonys, that uh, we started to do land office business. But was there a sense, I mean, playing that show in front of audiences, certainly before that kind of award affirmation, people who came in, certainly at that point, although Len Carrier's performance was brilliant, you were the bigger star, and people coming in expecting, you know, perhaps Mame or even Gypsy got something very different. Were were the audiences accepting right away, or were were they really puzzled by what they got? Well, you, you know, as you know, you have various sections of the audience. You have the... Uh, you you have the uh, you know inveterate Broadway audience who come in who are very knowledgeable who've seen most of the things you've done and nothing surprises them they're very critical then you have the tourists then you have the people who've never been never seen Angela Lansbury in the theater and who maybe have seen her in movies or television and they want to see her in the theater they didn't see Mame because a lot of time has passed by a lot of water was under the bridge even before from the time I did Gypsy so you 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 had a lot of interest and you had a very divided audience in a sense but um finally uh, public opinion prevailed i mean the, the overall b- uh, opinion of of the of the theater going public were told by the Tonys, that this was a great show. And then they started to enjoy it and be- become non- non-critical. Well, we've asked on a couple of the shows whether you'd seen your predecessors in the roles that you took on in different versions, and, and you said no. Certainly in Creating Mame, certainly in Sweeney Todd, which we have on Broadway again right now, how often have you had the opportunity to go and see, in any of the shows you've created roles in, Performers who then take on the role that you created, and how do you how do you respond when you get to see what they do with mm-hmm. what you started? Well, it's a difficult process. One always tends to be a little bit critical because uh, you, you made choices of how you were going to perform certain pieces and bits and so on, and and they do it differently. And and you say to yourself, well, maybe that was a little better. Maybe that was a good choice on their part to do such and so and then other times you say oh no they blew it she's blown it hmm. and I have seen I, I have said that, that to myself that's that's not what this part's about why are you doing that you know <laughs> but it's a not I, it isn't even being critical it's just an observation it's not critical because everybody must bring their own thing to every role you know but if you've made a success in a part naturally you, you think you know how to play it you're not necessarily right. Knowing how to play a part can uh, pertain certainly to theater, but to film and television as well. And we'd be remiss not to talk about Jessica Fletcher and 12 Years, one of the longest-running dramas ever on television, Mm -hmm. one of the highest-rated and most rewarded. Mm -hmm. How did Jessica Fletcher come into your life, or you into hers? Well, I had 
I'd been touring for about uh, playing and touring for about 15 years and uh, I was a bit bit tired of uh, packing and unpacking suitcases and uh, Peter and I were living in uh, Manhattan Plaza we had an apartment there and we always kept it through all the years and our house in Ireland we always stayed there in New York and uh, we said to one another one day I think it's time to have a have, to see if if I could get something cooking in television, so we put the word out with my agents. It happened to be the William Morris Agency. It's always a William Morris Agency, isn't it? <laughs> but Peter worked for them, so naturally oh. it was. <laughs> so it had to be William Morris. He was Morris. with them, yes. <laughs> so it was William Morris, although he didn't represent me. He, other people did. So I um, we did we we put the word out, and I got a call to come out to the to the coast, you know. Take a meeting on the coast. Take a meeting on the coast, yes. <laughs> so I flew out on my own, and I saw two producers. Um, one was um, Lear. Norman Lear. Uh, Norman Lear, who had a half-hour television series that he wanted to, to do, he, and he was very interested in me playing with Charlie Durning. So I went, and I had a meeting with the three of them, four of us all together, and uh, read through the scenes with Charlie, and then I went and I met a fellow at Universal Studios who was doing a, a one-hour drama series called Murder, She Wrote. And uh, this had been apparently written for Gene Stapleton. And uh, I read it. I didn't uh, read it through or, or do any, you know, I didn't have to read it scenes-wise. But I read it. And I chose out of the two to do Murder, She Wrote. Even though Norman Lear was a very hot producer, yes. all in the family shows like yes. that. Yes, because I didn't think I didn't think I could bring off the, the half hour. The sitcom. The sitcom. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. did it. He did it with somebody else, and it didn't work. So I'm not saying that my judgment was right necessarily, but I knew it was wrong for me. Mm-hmm. I just sensed it. Whereas Murder She Wrote, I thought, was an opportunity to play a woman of my own age, rather interesting, plain lady, and. Uh, but make something of it. Make her a, an individual, uh, maybe more different. One of the things that's often remarked on about Murder, She Wrote was the casting of all the guest stars. There seemed to be just a parade of both stage and, to a certain degree, old-time film stars going through that. How much of a hand did you have in that? And was that even part of the original conception? I don't think so. Luckily, though, our first executive producer, a man called Peter Fisher, loved the old actors, particularly the old movie stars. So he used to encourage us to bring them out of retirement and use them in roles, and we did with a great many. But as time went by and he was replaced, we got even more ambitious, and we brought people out from New York and people from the theater and really very good actors. And we had the most incredible casts, which made the show very, very nice for me because every eight days I would meet a whole new group of terrific people who were going to play the various characters in the new stories. And, um, and it, it, of course, paid off for the show. It made it that much better. So some very well-known faces walking through Cabot Cove. Indeed. And Indeed. Some, met, some being carried out, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I, I met a young woman last night at, 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 the, uh, at the city center um, big fundraiser, you know. And uh, she said, I did uh, Murder, She Wrote with you. Uh, her name was Beth Windsor. She said, I did it with George Clooney. 
and he and I were in this murder she wrote together. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? Wow. Yeah. I bet quite a few people walked through those 12 years. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. One of the unfortunate aspects of the great success of Murder, She Wrote, of course, is that it did take you away from the stage for a long period of time. And indeed, with the exception of some special performances and and benefits and so on, we haven't seen you on stage. But very recently, you did some readings of a new play out in Los Angeles, which got buzzed about. Can you tell us what drew you to that play and a little bit about it, since, of course, it was two or three readings? Yes, it was only three readings, and I did it as an experiment. I wanted to find out whether I, I could uh, marry myself to the material and uh, whether it could, might be the, the, the beginnings for a one-woman show. And this was, the title was? The title was um, Oscar and the P- Lady in Pink by Eric Manuel Schmidt. And uh, I, I agreed with Frank Dunlop, the a British director, to, to take it out there and to do readings. I wanted to, f- to just read, read it. Um, it's an extremely uh, um, extraordinary little piece. It's a novella, and it, it is dramatized to a degree, but has to be more da- dramatized. I didn't think that the translation was quite right, so I decided not to take it any further. But it was an experiment, and uh, I found out what I needed to know. But did it whet your appetite to get back on the stage? Will we see you on stage again in a full run? I'm sure you will, but I'd, I have no idea where it's going to drop out of the heavens from. <laughs> well, what What is on your your immediate agenda in the, in the future? Truthfully, um, I'm enjoying a lot of nice time of, of leisure, of enjoying my home in Ireland. I'm on my way to Ireland even as we speak, and I will be there for about six weeks. And uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, celebrate uh, the 40th anniversary, actually, of uh, MAME with three of the cast members who are in the chorus with me in MAME. And they're coming to Ireland on a little uh, tour, driving around. And we should point out that, uh, that MAME did open on May 24th, 1966, just 40 years That's ago. Right. That's right. So happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> very much. And on that note, Angela Lansbury, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. It's been fun. Likewise, fun. Angela, thank you so much. Not a bit. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.